I welcome back the marvelous Dr. Marshner. Thank you, Sabatino. Good morning, everybody. Now, um, only on my undergraduate students do I inflict torture on an hour and a half straight lecture. No, you are too kind for that. We're going to take a break after 45, 45 minutes. minutes. Exactly. <laughs> Who will be the official timekeeper to make sure I shut up in 45 minutes? <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, sir. All right. Our story may as well begin in the year 1483 when Martin Luther was born. He lived for 63 years died in 1546. And the first thing you need to know is that before Luther ever lifted his pen or nailed up a thesis, this was already an era of revolutionary ferment. In 1493, there was a peasant revolt in Alsace and in southwest Germany. 20 years later, there was another peasant revolt, this time in Württemberg and in the Black Forest. These peasant uprisings always had a religious dimension to them. Millenarian ideology was rampant, as was a ferocious anti-clericalism, a hatred for the hierarchy of the church. An organized movement of this kind had already surfaced in Moravia, where you had the work of a man named Jan Hus, who had already been put to death. In 1501, Luther was 18, and he entered an Augustinian school in the town of Erfurt. Four years later, he became a monk. 15-5, after four years, in this school, he became a monk. And it's an interesting year, 1501, because it's just about 50 years since the printing press had been invented. Now, oftentimes, stories of the Reformation begin with the allegation that uh, publishing, certainly religious publishing, was virtually unknown until Luther translated the Bible and then scripture reading and so on and so forth. This is nonsense. In the years since 1445, over a thousand publishing houses had been opened in Europe. They had published 33,000 titles, 10 million copies of books were in circulation by 1501. Now, in, in, in our age of New York Times bestsellers, I mean, 10 million doesn't sound like so much, but you have to remember, the population of Europe was much smaller in those days. The large and important city of Dresden had 2,000 residents. Towns <laughs> were small, and readership was small, and still, 10 million copies of books were in print, many of them portions of scripture, and many of them in um, vulgar, vulgar <coughs> popular spoken languages. Erasmus of Rotterdam, 
a famous, quote, humanist, unquote, Renaissance uh, man and uh, humanistic scholar, had already published his handbook of the Christian soldier in 1501, which was an important work of devotion, and was already a call for church reform. Erasmus was a civilized reformer, not always right, but still a man of restrained uh, zeal, but genuine zeal. Luther was another story. All right. He's a monk as of 1505. Two years later, in 1507, Luther was ordained. He was 24 years old, and he goes to study in the college at Wittenberg. Now, I need to say something at this point about Luther's education. Because he was a member of an Augustinian order of monks, he was, of course, exposed to the writings of Blessed Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the 5th century AD. And in particular, he was fascinated with St. Augustine's works on grace and human effort. These are books that St. Augustine wrote during his controversy with the Pelagians. The rest of St. Augustine's work were not of so much interest to him. But he never read any of the great classics of medieval theology. He never read a word of Aquinas. Never had the book in his hands. The standard textbook of theology in those days was the four books of opinions written by Peter Lombard, at one time Archbishop of Paris. Peter the Lombard, uh, early 12th century, Archbishop of Paris, wrote what was the standard textbook. When St. Thomas started his own teaching career, he commented on those four books of opinions. In Latin, it's the four books sententiarum, quator libri sententiarum. And because Latin, I mean, because English translators are absurdly lazy, that book has come over to us as the, the four books of the sentences. Sentences? Give me a break. What book is the book of sentences? <laughs> Sententia in Latin meant an opinion. What he did was collect points disputed among the followers of the church and resolve them to the best of his ability. And then the next probably 10 generations of theological masters commented on that textbook. Luther never read it. He never had it in his hands. The only work he knew was a commentary on the four books of the sentences, not the original text. And this commentary was not written by anybody famous, at least not famous until after the Reformation. Namely, a man named Gabriel Beale, B-I-E-L, Gabriel Beale, <coughs> commentary on Peter Lombard. And the main tendency of that work was its nominalism. Now, the importance of nominalistic thinking for the Reformation is one that I hope to get to a little bit later when I finish with this uh, chronological survey. I want everybody to have in mind the layout of this period and the 
major dates and what happened when. Well, we're up to 1570. Luther has now been ordained. Three years later, he goes for a visit to Rome. He was a delegate of his order to a conference in Rome. While he was in Rome, he was somewhat scandalized by the venality of various sellers of relics and pious dugas and so on. Um, you know what the French say, pre-sachange. Uh, the more it changes, the more it's the same. Yeah. Rome is still very much that way today. <laughs> anyway, Luther was a bit scandalized. Now, um, the year 1515 uh, is my next landmark. And it's an important one because that was the opening of the last ecumenical council of the Western Church in the Middle Ages. Lateran Council V was in session from 1515 to 1517. So there had been four previous Lateran Councils. That means they, they, they met at the great Basilica St. John's Lateran in Rome, huge public space where you could fit hundreds of bishops and abbots and uh, dignitaries of all kinds for these councils. And every one of those councils had been a reform council. Every one of them had been devoted to stamping out uh, ha, ha, simony, simony, the sale of ecclesiastical position. And by the way, um, I, I, of course simony was horrible. It's an absolute scandal within the church, but I want you to understand it in the context of the times. Okay? Unless you were born rich, a clerical position was your only way out of digging the turnip fields. Okay? It was backbreaking labor, labor or you could get a clerical position. To get a clerical position meant you also got a living because various fields and lands were attached for the upkeep and financial support of each parish church and also for each diocese and cathedral. And so remember, the entire basis of European wealth in those days was agricultural. To get income, you had to have producing fields. Producing fields supported parishes, they supported cathedrals, they supported monasteries. Since there was a monetary reward connected thus with getting a clerical post, what do you expect? Of course people are going to try to grease a few palms to get one of these plump positions. I'm not defending it. I'm simply pointing out why it was so common and why four, nay, five, Medieval councils had to pass legislation to stop. And by the way, thanks to the Reform Act of these councils, anyone who got a, an ordination or an Episcopal consecration as a result of money changing hands was automatically defrocked and banned from um, uh, acting as a clergyman. These councils also relegated, also, I said, regulated regulated the sale of relics 
They also dealt with problems of usury, problems of um, abuse of, uh, well, clerical celibacy. In Northern Europe, a lot of priests were covertly married. <coughs> so these reforms were going on. And the last effort at it was within Luther's own lifetime. Lateran Council 5, 1515-1517. Now in the same year that the council was closing, <coughs> Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, 1517. It was not a a huge uh, event, except in retrospect. This was just a parish church. People nailed up theses all the time because they were willing to debate things. In a way, you can relish the kind of civilization in which your entertainment is a theological debate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people would do this all the time. If somebody had a good argument, they thought about something with it. Nail up. I'm willing to debate all comers on the following five topics. Pico della Mirandola had done it down in Italy. He nailed up 150 topics. Debate all comers. Well, that's what Luther was, was doing here on the parish church in uh, Wittenberg. It, uh, wasn't a great event, but the content of some of these points that Luther was willing to debate uh, was disturbing, so disturbing that in the next year, 1518, Luther was summoned to meet with an important representative of the Holy See. <coughs> News of Luther's views were, was spread. It spread through his order, and it spread through popular pamphlets. And uh, Luther was summoned to meet with a very important Roman official named Gaetanus. In, uh, in English, we usually call him Cajetan. C-A-J-E-T-A-N. He was the Master General of the Dominican Order and also a Cardinal in the Roman Curia and also the most famous theologian in Europe at the time. He had written a hugely influential commentary on the whole first part of St. Thomas's enormous Summa Theologiae. The first part of the Summa is big enough, could have its eight or 900 pages. Adding the commentary, and it's more like 1,500 pages. So it was extremely uh, influential, kind of a bestseller, if you will, if you can imagine anybody reading anything that hard. But anyway, Luther met with Cardinal Cajetan. Cajetan tried to talk him around and reason with him. Luther absolutely refused to change any of his views. That was 1518. The next year, Luther met with another Vatican official, Cardinal von Miltitz, and did promise to submit. That was in 1519, he promised to submit, then he decided he wouldn't. Instead, he haired off to Leipzig to have a debate with a prominent Catholic theologian of the period, a man named Johannes Eck, E-C-K. Okay. Eck, by the way, in German means quarter. So this was John McCorder. And uh, that turned out to be a, uh, a very interesting debate. 
opinions vary on who won that debate. Um, we, all the Catholics say that Johannes Eck swept the floor with Martin Luther. The Protestants have another opinion of the debate. Shades of uh, recent presidential debates, perhaps. In that same year, 1519, another firebrand started preaching in Switzerland. That was Ulrich Zwingli. Z-W-I-N-G-L-I Zwingli started preaching in Zurich. 1519, and just for purposes of cross-reference, that's also the year that Cortez marched from the coast of Mexico all the way into the capital city of the Aztecs, 1519. Now then, Luther had been publishing his views for what? Two years, three years now preaching up a revolutionary point of view, anti-hierarchical, anti-sacramental, um, uh, against a number of important doctrines about free will and original sin, which I'll be getting into later. And already, within those three years, Luther had lost control of his reform movement. Zwingli did not agree with Luther on fundamental points. In some ways, Zwingli was even more radical. So he starts preaching down in Zurich according to his own tune. Meanwhile, a sect has arisen called the Anabaptists. Now, Anna, A-N-A, is one of these little Greek words that means again. So Anabaptists were rebaptizers. They refused to accept any validity of infant baptism. Luther had defended infant baptism. The Anabaptists refused it. So they insisted on rebaptizing everybody as an adult, assuming that they manifested signs of belief and repentance and so on. Now, when we think of Anabaptists today, we are uh, likely to think of um, uh, the Amish and other quiet groups, often pacifist. Well, the original Anabaptists were not that way at all. Their first important leader was a firebrand named Thomas Mincer. M-U-N-Z-E-R, but to put two little strokes over the U in Mincer. That makes it not Munzer, but Mincer. Thomas Mincer uh, started a uh, ferocious millenarian movement and soon took over a whole city. What became of that? We will say shortly, but I have to say one more thing. <coughs> about the wonderful year 1520. Chocolate came to Europe. <laughs> 1520. The Spaniards brought it from Mexico. And that's the first half of the good news. The other half of the good news is Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. He put out a papal bull called Arise, O Lord. Ex Domine, 
Arise, O Lord, and smite the wild boar who trampleth thy vineyard. Leo X put out this bull, and before we go any further, I want to make sure you understand what a bull is. It's short for the Latin word bulla, which means a lead seal. Okay. The difference between popes don't write bulls anymore. They only write encyclicals, and this is not because. you know, they've, they've, they've gotten, I don't know, sort of soft. <laughs> Bulls were addressed to governments. Okay. The lead seal was stamped and could only be opened by the local ruler. So it was a papal diplomatic communication to the Holy Roman Emperor, to the King of France, to the King of Hungary, to the heads of various Italian city-states and so on, uh, letting this judgment be known. There hasn't been a papal bull since 1854 because of the disappearance of Catholic governments. There's nobody to open the seal anymore. And cyclicals, rather, are written to bishops. Bulls were written to governments. All right, that was 1520. And uh, when Luther received a copy of the bull, he, of course, held a public demonstration and burned it. Burned it. Refused to submit, refused to accept any authority from the Holy See. Partly on the basis that he refused to be refuted from anything, by anything, except quotations from the Bible. Okay. Never mind what the church had always held and taught from the first century, the second, the third. Never mind the witness of tradition. Never mind the consensus of the church fathers. He would be persuaded only by what could be quoted from the Old or New Testament itself. Of course, Luther quickly developed his own ideas about what books were in the Old Testament. The um, first and second books of the Maccabees had to be struck from the canon by Luther. Even though those books had been in the church's canon since the canon was finally set in the third century. They were part of the Alexandrian canon. They were printed in the Septuagint. Well, copied in the Septuagint. Copied in the Vulgate. Luther had to get rid of them because they explicitly portrayed Judas Maccabeus as making prayers for the dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sacrifices and prayers for the dead. Luther thought this was a superstitious practice. <coughs> Those books had to go. 1521 <coughs> was Luther's most famous year. <coughs> okay, so 1483 to 1521. He's how old now? Math types figured out. In 1521, he has his famous moment at the Parliament of Worms, W-O-R-M-S, name of a German town. Uh, Parliaments in those days were called diets. You know, when I was a kid, everybody learned about this, the Diet of Worms, ah! (laughs) Right. Luther was summoned there, he was examined, the Emperor Charles V was in town. Luther was examined before this little parliament. 
uh, maintained that he held what he held on the basis of scripture and he could not do otherwise. That's his famous estate. Here I stand. God help me, I cannot do other. The emperor was not persuaded and Luther was then imprisoned for a year in a castle called Warburg. Okay. He wasn't thrown into a dungeon. The Warburg's a pretty nice place. You can go visit it to this day and study there uh, while he was in uh, house arrest, whatever you want to call it, at the Warburg. He got to work translating the New Testament into German. And if you, if you go there as a tourist, you can still see the famous blotch on the wall that legend says is where Luther threw an ink pot at the devil. Devil appeared to him. Luther chased him out of the bottle of ink. I guess he did. I have a somewhat different idea of what uh, exorcism requires, but ink did it for him. Pope Leo X died that year, and the Holy See was in weak hands. The next Pope, Adrian VI, reigned for only a year, um, then died. And so in 1523, we have yet another Pope, Clement VII. Now, he stayed around for a while and lived to see a great deal of trouble. Luther returned to Wittenberg in 1522, and now is faced with the fact that during the one year he was in house arrest at the Vartborg, the Reformation had completely gotten out of his hands. Iconoclasts were smashing windows, altars, images all over the place. Radicals were preaching doctrines that Luther did not approve of. They were preaching up, in fact, a peasant revolt. Luther was forced to condemn his own followers, his more radical followers. 1522, he finished translating the New Testament. And, by the way, just for a cross-reference again, the same year in England, the future St. Thomas More became the Speaker of the House of Commons. Alright, Luther's back in Wittenberg, condemning his more radical followers. The Protestant princes are called together because of the mobs that are following those more radical followers of Luther. The German princes are called upon by Luther to restore some order. Many princes had rallied to Luther. Luther's Reformation would never have gotten to be a big deal without considerable political support. That's just fair to say. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to understand princes had a motive to support Luther because it, it, it would give them another measure of freedom of action against the Holy Roman Empire and the upper clergy. Well, these Protestant princes met in Ulm in uh, 1524. Zwingli, by the way, abolished the mass in Zurich, the town he had taken over, 1524. The Protestant princes get together 
and lead a campaign against the Peasants' Revolt. This is the big Peasants' Revolt in South Germany, led by the firebrand Thomas Münzer and others. <laughs> a year later, 1525, the Peasants' Revolt was put down. Luther had to put out an incendiary tract against, quote, against the thieving and murderous hordes of peasants. <laughs> the peasant revolt was suppressed. The town of Münster was besieged, taken, and Thomas Münster was executed. You get this straight. The town was called Münster, like the cheese. Okay. That's where Mincer set up his apocalyptic reign of the saints. Okay. And uh, that reign of the saints, the reign of the saints turned everything from charismatic frenzy to wild immorality. Because Mincer preached that with the coming of the good news of grace and the gospel, all moral restraints were abolished <laughs> for the saved. Wow. Since we are now under grace, we can jolly well do as we please. Well, Vincent certainly did, had many uh, um, sister servants to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank goodness he was executed. And in that same year, Luther married a former nun. 1525, Luther married Catherine von Bora. That was her name, Catherine von Bora. She was 26 years old. She outlived him by a few years. And um, at this time, there had been, by this time, there had been a major falling out between Luther and Erasmus. I mentioned Erasmus before. Erasmus was a controlled, a sort of level-headed reformer and humanist scholar. <coughs> Luther was a firebrand reformer. Well, let's use the right word, revolutionary. For a while, they thought they had some common ground. It quickly fell apart when Luther published his book on the servile will denying that man had free will. That denial was too much for Erasmus. He broke with Luther. <laughs> in uh, 1525, uh, when Luther got married, uh, Erasmus declared the whole Reformation to have turned into a comedy. A classical comedy was a play in which, in the last act, everybody gets married. <laughs> All right. The Anabaptists now left Germany and settled in Moravia. They settled down there and eventually became the Moravian Brethren. 1526, a year into his marriage, Luther publishes worship service for the first time in Germany. Oddly enough, it was called the German Mass. You don't find it called that in Lutheran churches anymore. The next year, the Reformation came to Sweden, 1527. And a Protestant university was founded. The very first officially Protestant university was founded in the town of Marburg. Okay. 
a quarrel came to a head between the emperor, Charles V, and the pope, who, remember, at this time was Clement VII. <laughs> the, pope and the, em I mean, the pope and the emperor could not agree on what to do about this spreading revolt. Luther, Zwingli, the Anabaptists, now it's in Sweden. What in the world are we going to do? Charles V was in favor of temporizing and in favor of trying to reach a political, prudent political compromise that would leave the Protestant princes safe in their territory. Uh, although the trouble with that idea is you couldn't contain their territory because their ideas were continually being spread and metastasized. The Pope, on the other hand, wanted a hard line and wanted uh, continual action against the reformers. Now, in those days, when there was a quarrel between the emperor and the Holy See, what can I tell you? The emperor represents late action. In 1527, lay Catholic action took the form of the emperor's army invading Rome. <laughs> they sacked the place. They carried off tons of treasures. They imprisoned the pope. They imprisoned many of the cardinals. My hero, Cardinal Cajetan, who'd had that unsuccessful dialogue with Luther, was imprisoned, beaten, shamefully treated, and uh, retired. As of that year, he said, this is enough. I went back to my hometown, Gaeta, and there he spent the rest of his life writing Bible commentaries. It was a bad year for the church, 1527. In 1528, the Reformation broke out in Scotland. You've all heard of John Knox. And in that same year, Henry VIII started canvassing his nobles to see if they would support the divorce from Catherine of Aragon. All right, now, we're only 10 years, 11 years from the posting of the 95 Theses. This thing is suddenly all over Europe within 11 years. In 1529, Luther and Zwingli had a public debate. They disputed about the Eucharist at Marburg. Luther believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He didn't see how he could get around the clear words of the New Testament where our Lord said, this is my body. Not this looks like it. Not this represents it. But this is it. Zwingli, on the other hand, denied that there was any real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So we have a huge Eucharistic debate, which continues among the Protestant denominations to this day. Um, you don't need to know about poor Cardinal Woolsey. He fell from power and quickly died. Thomas More became Lord Chancellor. We're now down to 1530, another famous year in Reformation history because this is the year when the Confession of Augsburg was published. 
It was signed by the Protestant princes. It was their common declaration of faith. And in the name of that declaration, they formed, guess what? A military alliance called the Schmalkaldic League. Don't try to spell it. <laughs> the Schmalkaldic League against the emperor. In 1531, Henry VIII declared himself the head of the church in England. There was war in Switzerland between Zwingli and the Catholic cantons. Remember, Switzerland was not one country. It was divided up into all these different cantons. Zurich was Protestant. Many other cantons were Catholic. Zwingli went to war thinking that in addition to being a charismatic preacher, he could also be a successful soldier. He was wrong. He was killed in battle in 1531. But no more than one dies and another crops up because in 1532, Calvin started the Reformation in France. 1533, Henry VIII marries Anne, well, quote, marries, unquote, Anne Berlin in secret. It wasn't made public until a man named Thomas Cranmer said it was a legitimate marriage. Well, he had to say that because Henry VIII had made Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury. So that he would have a loyal man to say that, and Pope Clement then immediately excommunicated Henry. The Anabaptists have been quiet for a while. I don't mean to give a bad, uh, you know, false indication there, because they were now back in Germany, in Westphalia, where they established a communist state. Everybody was to own everything in common. This time, they were led by John of Leiden. In that same year, St. Ignatius founded the Jesuits. Clement VII died, and Paul III became Pope. The next year, Thomas More was executed. That's 1535. The Hessian army moves against the Anabaptist communist state and crushes it. 1535 wasn't all bad. <laughs> Catholic practice was restored in the town of Minster. But the study of county law was forbidden at Cambridge. No papist studies here, I think. In 1536, Calvin published his most famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. We'll be talking about him uh, in two weeks' time. The Reformation spread to Denmark and Norway. 1536 is also the year when 376 monasteries and convents were closed, forcibly closed by Henry VIII, their property seized and handed out to his friends and courtiers, whom Hilaire Belloc uh, uh, amusingly calls the Reformation millionaires. <laughs> Now then, in 1544, Paul III, who's now Pope, called for a general council at last to meet the Protestant emergency. It was called to meet at Trent, summoned to meet in 1545. It did meet in 1545. It had been in session one year when Luther died, 1546. 
So he never saw any of the official output of the council, which worked for 21 years to condemn his work and ordered off sessions from 1545 to 1564, uh, the Council of Trent. 21 years worth of work covering the enormous range of topics uh, upon which Luther had touched. With the opening of the Council of Trent, I'm finished all I want to say about the chronological framework of these events coming topsy-turvy, one on top of another. After our break, 10 minutes, don't you think? Yeah. Good round number? Five. 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 <laughs> Scrooge says five. All right, fine. After five minutes, would you settle for seven? No. No, no, no. Seven minutes. Seven minutes and we can be, and we'll talk theology and dogma. Back to uh, heresy and truth. <laughs> <laughs> about it is, I guess. I want to take you now into the church's first uh, official act against uh, Martin Luther. This is already in 1520, uh, when Pius X, uh, Leo, Leo X, puts out that bull, um, Arise, O Lord. I'm not going to read you all the condemned propositions. I'm going to read you a few of them. Uh, what's really remarkable about this document is this. There's not a word in here about justification by faith alone. There's not a word in here about the alleged sufficiency of scripture to settle all theological disputes. Luther's sola scriptura stand and his sola fide stand were still in germination in 1520. These were not the first problems that the church noticed with Luther. I think you're going to be surprised to see what those first problems were. And they are certainly um, the openers. Okay, like this one. This is proposition number 31. <coughs> Condemned. Luther said, in every good work, a righteous man sins. In every good work, a just or righteous man sins. Let's try proposition number 32. A good work done in the best possible way is a venial sin. <laughs> Opus bonum optime factum. A good work done the best possible way is a venial sin. Let's try proposition number 35. <coughs> no one is sure that he or she is not always sinning mortally. <laughs> on account of a very hidden vice of pride. On account of a very hidden 
vice of pride. You can never be sure about what you're sinning mortally, just all time. Okay. Here's proposition number 36. <clears throat> Free will after Adam's sin is an empty title. <clears throat> an empty title. And while a man does the best he can, he sins more. Okay. One more in this line. This is back at number eight. In no way should you presume to confess your venial sins. Nor should you try to confess all your mortal sins, because it's impossible. It's impossible for you to know all your mortal sins. So in the early church, only the obvious ones were confessed. Now, let's stop a minute here. And let's ask ourselves a question about why these remarks sound strange. And I want you to know that they sounded strange to me when I first encountered them, and I was a Lutheran at the time. I was a college student. And headed for the Lutheran Center. And I got to work at a summer camp. The teenagers from, uh, from my Lutheran church. And we had a, a guest speaker come in and he expounded this aspect of Luther's thought to us. I had never heard it before. Mm -hmm. It is certainly not preached mm -hmm. from the pulpit. And I thought, this is crazy. I heard such nonsense. <laughs> You're sinning no matter what you do? <clears throat> okay. The reason this sounds so weird to us, and I think so weird to even the average Protestant churchgoer, is that we have an understanding that a sin is a conscious act. A sin is a choice. Now think back to your catechism definition of mortal sin. Do you remember the ingredients, mm -hmm. the definition of mortal sin? What are they? Great matter, great matter, full consent of the will, deliberation, full consent of the will. So, a mortal sin is a conscious choice in our understanding. You can't possibly not be aware of your mortal sins. Now, I, 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 I know if you, if you go 20 years without confession, you're going to forget a bunch. I'm sure that's true. But, but still, I mean, uh, you, you, you know uh, when you're deliberately acting against the love of God and his commandments. You, you know that. <clears throat> For Luther, however, sin did not have to be a conscious act. Okay. Now, where would he get the idea that sin didn't have to be a conscious act? To understand this, oh, and by the way, 
eventually this is going to take us to the, the roots of his theory of justification. But to, to understand this, we've got to take a step back and look at Luther's theology of original sin. Okay? And baptism. Original sin and baptism. And to understand Luther on this, you've got to go yet another step back and consider the doctrine of the medieval Augustinians, including the great Peter Lombard. Okay? It was often asked in the Middle Ages, what exactly is the core or the essence of original sin? Okay. And Peter Lombard read Augustine as maintaining that the very essence, heart, and core of original sin is disordered desire. There's a fancy Latin word for that. <coughs> concupiscence. Concupiscentia. Okay. Concupiscence. It means disordered desire. Okay. Um, any over-responsiveness to the passions of the flesh? Yes. But also any over-responsiveness to the temptations of wealth in the world and, and so on. Disordered desire. Um, and you could have in the Catholic understanding, you could have this disordered desire, obviously, even while you were resisting it. Let me ask you this. Has anybody here ever resisted a temptation? <laughs> well, I would hope so. You wouldn't want to be like that lazy Mark Twain once attributed his long life to the fact that he'd wasted no energy resisting temptation. <laughs> well, I sincerely hope that you have all resisted some temptation. You temptation, that's the disordered desire, but you're resisting it, you're not consenting with your will. Clear? Alright. But Peter Lombard taught, and he has some quotations of Augustine's supporters, that this disordered desire, whether consented to or not, disordered desire itself was the very heart and soul of original sin. It was what Adam had unleashed in us by his act. Original sin in us was identically this disordered desire. Okay? Now then, I appeal to those of you who are theologically better equipped. There is a more famous, more correct definition of original sin comes originally from St. Anselm, then from St. Augustine, then it's ratified at the Council of Trent. What is the better and more famous definition of original sin? As it is in us. All from grace. It's close. Close. It's the privation of grace. In other words, we are born with something we're supposed to have not there. Right? And privation of grace. Privation of a supernatural element. That's what St. Anselm thought was original sin. That's what St. Thomas agreed was original sin. And these medieval masters were battling against Peter Lombard's opinion that original sin is identically this disordered desire. Now you're looking at me and wondering what in the world? Come on, why is this a big deal? 
Okay. Let me ask you this. Have you been baptized? Yeah. Does baptism take away original sin? Yes. Uh, do you still have disorderly desire? Yes. Oh, oops. <laughs> right there you have walked into the problem. If original sin in us is identically concupiscence, then baptism doesn't take it away. Uh-oh. Well, then what's baptism really do? <clears throat> Peter Lombard, and after him, all of the medieval Augustinians taught that baptism took away the reus, the guilt of original sin, but not the thing itself. In other words, original sin was just as much in you and just as much alive in you as it had ever been, but now God didn't count it. Okay? Now, before you think too badly of these medieval Augustinians, let me say there was more to their doctrine. The part I've quoted is the part that Luther took over. They did have more to their doctrine. They did maintain that baptism restored sanctifying grace as a reality to the soul. They did maintain that this grace weakened concupiscence. And they did maintain that once we were baptized, we were freed from the dominion of the devil. Okay. Now, never mind those things. Those things are not going to count for Luther because of this other odd moves. He's going to deny that there is any such thing as grace, as a reality in the soul. But let's not get there quite yet. <laughs> Stick to the fact that he's treating original sin as disordered desire, which is still in our psyches. He's saying baptism doesn't take it away. And now, he makes one simple and fatal break with all of his medieval Catholic predecessors, Augustinian predecessors, however good or bad theologians they were. We'll settle that another time. But here's where he made his enormous break. All of his predecessors <coughs> said that disordered desire just in itself is not sin in the proper and formal sense of the word. Properly speaking, a sin is a conscious choice. Disordered desire is only called sin because it comes from Adam's sin. That's its origin in history. And it leads us to sin. But it itself is not formal sin, right? That's what they all taught. But Luther said, no, 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 no. It is sin. It is formally sin. Okay, so now, let's suppose that you are a, oh, I don't know, young fellow in the toils of adolescence, you're 18 and feeling all the old hormones and all of that, and you are tempted by some flossy uh, advertisements and things, and, um, you, you, you resist that temptation. You tell yourself custody of the eyes. Good for you. But according to Luther, you've already sinned. 
<laughs> Have the temptation and you're sinning. Resist the temptation and you're still sinning. The sin is to have the temptation. To sin and to be tempted are the same thing. All of a sudden. Okay. This is revolutionary. Now concupiscence is real sin. Now look. Do you know in your conscious mind all of the inner layers of your subconscious as you go through life, as you make decisions? Suppose you decide to resist a temptation. Good for you. Custody of the eyes, you remind yourself. Do you know for an absolute fact that in, in, within your motivation to make that morally good choice, there wasn't some little bit of, well, I've got to keep up my self-respect, you know. Luther would call that very subtle vice of pride. Now, come on, none of us knows oh, the, the murky depths of our subconscious. This is what Luther meant when he said, you're sinning in everything you do. Even good works optimally motivated, or at least venially sinful, say he. You can't tell how many mortal sins you've committed in any given day, in any given hour. Because he has taken this barely conscious or even subconscious phenomenon, this resisted phenomenon, and turned it into mortal sin. Okay. How in the world? How in the world could somebody do that? Okay. Isn't this wild? And why would anyone else believe it? There is one, look, you'd be amazed how many tragedies in history can turn upon a certain thing like a word. Okay. Remember how the ninth and tenth commandments begin? I don't know how you number them. But when I was in Lutheran Sunday school, they are both about not coveting. Thou shalt not covet. And then all the rest of this stuff. Right? Thou shalt not covet. Can you translate that into Latin? Non concupiscas. So it looks like you shall not exercise concupiscence. You shan't have concupiscence. That's how Luther took it. So be, to, to, just to be tempted was already to violate the ninth and tenth commandments, and hence was mortal sin. Talk about a linguistic disaster. Perfectly stupid. I mean, that, that's as bad. I mean, pardon me. That's as bad, almost as bad. Well, it's worse. It's worse, frankly. Then our little English disaster about the fifth commandment, you know, the King James Bible, thou shalt not kill. And that gets quoted by every animal rights nut. <laughs> when in fact the Hebrew commandment is low tiered sock, which means thou shalt not do murder. It doesn't say low tick tall, not kill. It says low tiered sock, don't do murder. So we've got one cultural disaster after another based upon faulty Bible translations. And don't blame the King James Bible. 
Kill didn't mean then what it means now. Right? If you wanted to say, don't, don't kill anything, in King James's day, he would have said, thou shalt not slay. But language changes. Slay got lost. Kill became a general word for what we do to chickens. <laughs> okay, now then. If everything you do is so tainted by resisted or even subconscious disordered desire at any level that everything you do is a sin, then obviously nothing you do can contribute to your salvation. Am I right about that? Or do you think you can get to heaven by sinning? So nothing you do can contribute in any way to your salvation. This is why Luther had to entertain a very peculiar concept of faith. He did not develop his concept of faith fully until uh, the later 1520s when he was working on his translation of St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in working on that translation, he decided that faith is not an act. It's not exactly something you do. Well, I always thought it was. The act of faith, we would call it. The act of giving the sin. The act of hearing with the sin. That kind of thing. Seems perfectly sensible. Luther said, no, 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 it can't be that because if faith were an active sort of a thing, it would be tainted by concupiscence and it would be a sin. So faith has to become the unwork. As seven up is the uncola. <laughs> faith has to become the unwork, the undeed, a purely passive acceptance of a benefit from God. Purely passive. Luther was never able to make any philosophical sense out of that. But, of course, he wasn't bothered by problems like that. He just didn't care. Um, he thought that faith could not be a positive act. That's why it could be the way in which you receive grace. He thought of faith as a kind of hand God is coming down with the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's holding this blessing here. Faith is kind of the hand that takes it. Okay. But the hand is purely passive. Well, you can try to make sense of that if you want to. I can't. Faith is apprehensive and yet it's purely passive. It apprehends the righteousness of God and yet it's purely passive. En tant peur, as the French say. Let him who can figure it out, figure it out. <laughs> the result is Luther could make a radical, radical dichotomy between faith and works. There it is. If faith is the unwork, then it's radically different from all works. Okay, I'm sorry that Luther didn't spend as much time translating and commenting on the epistle to the Philippians as he spent commenting on the one to the Galatians. 
because if he had, he might have run into that very important work. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything, but faith which does what? Faith which worketh by love. Okay? Faith which worketh by love. All right. Now, uh, if baptism doesn't take away concupiscence, which is real, the heart and soul of original sin is real sin. But thanks to our baptism, and then thanks to our faith, the sin is not reckoned to us. Do you see how already you're in a position of turning man's justification into a purely forensic or juridical affair? Okay. Thanks to baptism, God no longer looks at the psychological reality of your sin, said Luther. He just counts you acquitted. So justification is fixing the book of life. I would dare say cooking the book of life. Okay. Now, um, I could spend more time at this point talking about uh, Luther's notion of um, uh, the forensic, purely forensic character of our justification. And I may come back to that topic a little bit next week when we'll, we'll talk a lot more about Zwingli. But I want to emphasize now um, that the real, uh, the real point of disagreement um, about it. <laughs> Those are all the ones I've been talking about. But when it comes to justification, well, what exactly does our, our fight boil down to in the end? Okay. Number one, for us, grace is a reality, a real gift of God. As it says in the second epistle of Peter in the New Testament, it is a sharing in the divine nature. So it's a real gift. It comes from above our nature, enters into us, and affects us. Okay. For Luther, it was not. And this is where his nominalist teachers came to have a great influence. For Luther, there was no need to posit any mysterious internal entity in man called grace it would suffice if grace was a friendly attitude in God. God simply turned from wrath towards us to favor towards us. Okay? So grace is nothing real in man. Grace is a smiley face on God. Okay? Until you are a believer in Christ, you're under God's frowny face. As soon as you believe you're under the smiley face, there's no eternal change in you. You're just the same dung heap you always were, but now you're under the smiley face. Right? No real internal grace. That's point number one. Okay. Protestants, Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholics are all at one in saying 
that the preparation for us to believe is a work of God's grace. Okay? If you ask, how does a person come to repentance? How does a person come to conversion? The answer is always sola gratia. It's all a matter of God's grace. That's why we used to have a nice um, uh, department of Catholic literature, books by converts, telling how God led them to the church, how he's great. And these books were called Testimonium Gratia. <coughs> My testimony to God's grace. So now let's make sure we're all on the same sheet of music here. Because I, I, I want to find out if there are any secret Pelagians among us. It's really suspicious. Do you think that a human being, by his or her own free will and use of reason, can develop an interest in the things of God, can begin to seek God in the way God wants to be sought? Look at you all shaking your heads. Yes, 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 yes. You're all Pelagians. Okay, but without free will, you couldn't do it. And without the use of reason, you couldn't do it. But what turns your will towards God and gives you this kind of interest is always God's grace. You move stirred by grace. Okay? One of these days, we're going to have one of these speeches on the, the Council of Orange. And then we'll get into all this stuff about Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and so on, because... I'm deaf on the subject. All right, we got that straight now. Up until the very point where you say, surrender, yes, God, I do believe, up until that very point, you are completely dependent upon God's grace. You're led by grace. You're being changed by grace. Your heart is being softened by grace. It's grace. Now then, the very moment of transition from spiritual death to spiritual life. The very moment of justification. Do we identify that moment with your believing? With the act of faith? Yes, we do. The Lutherans do. We do. Okay? And at a certain point, we can all say sola fide. Because even the Council of Trent says that faith is the foundation and root of all justification. Why Trent would say that, I hope to make clear. If not today, next week. <laughs> but now, Lutherans and Catholics also agree on the following crucial <coughs> distinction. There's such a thing as dead faith, there's such a thing as living faith. You are not saved by dead faith. Luther never said you are. You can only be saved by a living faith. A saving faith, a living faith. What is that? How is it different from a dead faith? Okay. This is where we get to the real heart of the difference between us and this particular reformer, Luther. For Luther, living or saving faith is trust in God's promise in Christ. 
Faith is trust. This is the fiduciary theory of faith. It's trust in God's promise. Dead faith, on the other hand, can be an assent to every doctrine and every sentence of Scripture. Just ascending to all the truths that God has revealed to us, ah, even the devils believe in tremble. Forget it. To be saved by your faith, your faith has got to be a trust in God's promise in Christ. And what promise is that? That if you believe, you will be saved. So then, as soon as you make this I want to call it an act. I don't know what else to call it. Yeah. This passive act. This unwork. Yeah. As soon as you make this unwork of believing, okay, you're doing a job of trusting the promise, and the promise says if you believe, you're saved, and so you instantly know. But you're saved. Because you've trusted the promise. God can't be lying. So there you are. You are fully saved so long as you believe you are. Did Luther say you could lose your justification? Sure. Sure. All you have to do is entertain a doubt about whether you're really saved. No. <laughs> so in other words, the very attitude that we Catholics call prudence, he called apostasy. It's a strange notion of faith. Now, let's go back to our side. We also distinguish between dead faith and living faith. But we get our distinction from the Bible. Not from some theory of trust. We get our distinction from the Epistle of James and from that verse in Philippians. A saving faith is one that works through love. Or is at least disposed to. In the language of Trent, it was fides caritate formata. Faith informed by love. Faith that's ready to work in love. The thief on the cross had it. Just no time. Okay? Faith that's ready to work in love is faith that's ready to obey. That's saving faith. <coughs> Dead faith is faith where you say, oh yeah, I believe it all, but you won't do anything. As James said in his epistle. Okay. Faith without works is dead. Yes? Luther really thought the epistle of James should be thrown out of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. But even in Germany, the tradition was sort of too strong against him. He couldn't quite get rid of it. But let's put it this way. He understood faith in a way that's put St. Paul at odds with St. James. We don't. Our doctrine is consistent with both of those great biblical authors. Saving faith is faith ready to work because it's informed by love. Yes? And this, this is what makes sense. This is what makes sense. In fact, let's, let's just, and I'm going to finish with this. What is faith? In a very general definition, faith would be man's rightful response to God revealing. The rightful response to God revealing. Okay. God reveals more than one kind of point. Some of the things God reveals, yes, are propositions about invisible things. In my Father's house are many mansions, he says. When God reveals a proposition, the right response to it is to assent to it. That's number one. But God doesn't just reveal propositions. 
All right, he also reveals promises. Yes, I will be with you until the end of the world. He says at the end of Matthew's Gospel. What's the right response to a revealed promise? Okay, Luther, to trust it. You're right. But God doesn't just reveal propositions and promises. God also reveals instructions. When you pray, he says, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven, and so on and so on. When God reveals a, a, an instruction, what's the right response to it? Follow the instruction. Of course. Oh my, pardon me. But God already also reveals commandments. Okay. Love me as I have loved you. Okay. God also reveals commandments. What's the proper response to reveal commandments? Obedience. Obey it. Which is why St. Paul often calls faith the obedience of faith. Hippokoe pisteos. The obedience of faith. Because right faith in, reaction, in relation to a commandment is to obey it. In relation to an instruction is to follow it. In relation to a promise is to trust it. God reveals consolations. Fear not, little flock. Okay? A little while, you won't see me, and then you will. I will. Your heart will not be troubled. What's the right response to a consolation? Feel it! These are all part of the response of faith. That's why the notion is so rich in St. Paul. That's why the scholastic idea of faith informed by love is really no more than decent exegesis of what the Apostle had in mind. That's living faith. And it's not sealed off, vacuum sealed, hermetically sealed from works. It's a powerful fountain of works. Because if you love me, said our Lord, you will keep my commands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, thank you all very much. Our um, regular rules apply. We're going to do a maximum of five minutes of questions. Maximum of five questions, whatever we reach first. The questions are to be one sentence long, and there must be a question mark on the end of your sentence. Oh. <laughs> All right, this tactical iron fist has come down. <laughs> you mentioned that Luther took out books of the Catholic canon, but what he really did was to adopt the, the Jewish Bible, correct? Correct. What is your... Um, Understanding why don't the Jewish people include Maccabees and some of the other in in the Old Testament? Why would Luther go for that? Uh, part so some of them were not written in Hebrew; they were originally composed in Greek. Others had the problem that they uh, contained ideas that the rabbis didn't approve of, or they were too useful for Christian apologetics. Okay. So, by the way, that Jewish decision, look, those books are all in the Septuagint, which was completed before the end of the first century BC. The Jewish truncated canon was decreed only at the Council of Jamnia, which was a rabbinical council held after the fall of Jerusalem. Yes, ma'am. If we receive grace at baptism and we need grace to seek God, what about people who aren't baptized to seek God? I'm a little confused. 
Okay, there's a difference between what we call sanctifying grace, which is a stable thing in the soul, and actual grace. Actual grace are transitory helps from God. Good thoughts, good inspirations, movements of the will, and so on. You don't have to be in grace to receive actual graces. Thanks be to God. The reason people who are not baptized can ultimately get converted, come into the church or whatever, is because God is reaching out to them through those, those acts. Okay? Those graces in which God leads them to an act. Thinking of this. Preferring that. These are acts through which God brings people to uh, justification. Those are by actual graces. When the person actually finally reaches the point of believing, uh, then um, uh, the, the individual uh, receives sanctifying grace. That's certainly true if they're baptized. If they're not baptized, maybe they have the baptism of desire. Let's not get into all that. Yes, ma'am. If, if in Luther's view, temptation itself was a sin, and in the propositions that you quoted, there was reference to both venial sin and mortal sin, what was the distinction between venial sin and mortal sin in Luther's view? Uh, it doesn't matter because he gave it up. <laughs> but in these early propositions that uh, were circulating by 1520, he was still clinging to the Catholic distinction between venial and mortal sin. Temptation was a mortal sin or a venial sin? It depends upon which book of his you call and which sentence of which book. Sometimes he says it's mortal. Sometimes, well, maybe it, it, it just Luther was not a systematist. He would get on a rhetorical tear and go. I know people like that. <laughs> You're going to say something about nominalism as being the, uh, the, the machine yeah. kind of driving this whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Is it, is it time? Uh, one of the things that nominalism likes to do is deny that there is anything in the world except particulars. Okay? So here's you, here's me, we're particular substances. God would be a particular spiritual substance. Okay? Now, think of things like being white, being round, being red. We call these properties of things. Nominalism likes to say there are no properties. Okay? There are no real properties. Things just are what they are, and properties, general traits, have no reality to them except the fact that we've got a word for them. All right, so try to imagine a world in which there are no real accidents or properties. Okay. Now, grace was supposed to be a real property, and especially a mysterious one. Nominal <coughs> said, let's just get rid of it. Why do we need it? Instead of having a real property in man, let's just think of an attitude in God. <coughs> Quick solution to what is otherwise an interesting metaphysical problem. But it's, it, it's also a terribly sterile solution. I mean, it, it couldn't even be defended in the Middle Ages when it was freely debated. Um, it's a sterile solution because it loses, it loses uh, everything that the New Testament and the tradition has to say about the divine life in us. Is that going to be, what, a mere matter of words? Okay. 
that we have a sharing in the divine life, that we're alive and quickened with a new life now. Okay? That we no longer walk by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Because we're alive on a new basis. There's something new that's in us that's real and that corresponds to God's own life. If you give up grace as a real property in the soul, because non-realism says let's get rid of properties, you give up all that. And uh, I suppose, you know, this is one of the remote reasons why growing up a Lutheran, we never concentrated on those beautiful epistles of St. John. You know, the gospel, we sort of, you know, read parts, but the epistles of John just, yeah, sort of weren't on the reading list. It might have been, may as well have been Second Chronicles. <laughs> because everything was Galatians and Romans. <laughs> but no, uh, it's, 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 it's a sterile. It was a sterile solution. Yes? Forgive me if you've already answered this, but baptism for Luther was just something you just did or, or I mean, if, why be baptized at all? All right. <laughs> Luther had, and it's a good, very good question. One that only Luther's shrink could answer. <laughs> I don't mean to be harsh about it, but I mean, let's face it. Luther has a pervasive anti-sacramental attitude, but he couldn't get away from the obvious New Testament texts about baptism in the Eucharist. He thought those two sacraments have to be kept okay, out of the traditional list. Even though they didn't really do it. Oh, but they did. Oh, see. Even though baptism did not give us a real gift called sanctifying grace, it did have the real effect of making our original sin no longer imputed to us. So God smiles at us. Huh? So God smiles at us now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Baptized babies come under God's smiley face. So, uh, in that sense, Luther continued to believe in baptismal regeneration. I just had no end of fun when I was in high school because I was a stubborn little Lutheran brat and all of my best friends were Baptists. <laughs> and we had fights every week about baptismal regeneration. It, it, it was great. And I, 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 I'm forever grateful for the epistle to Titus. Titus 3, 5. Okay. <laughs> Where St. Paul talks about the, um, the, uh, the washing of regeneration, which even now does what? Saves us! Okay. We're saved by baptism. It's not just some watery ratification of the faith by which we're saved. It saves us. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is one of the points on which the, the Reformation shattered. Uh, some tried to cling to baptism as really making a difference. Others turning it into a basically inactive ordinance or a witness to one's already firm faith. Uh, How many sacraments does does Luther have? Two. Two of them? Two. He doesn't keep marriage. Baptism in you. No, he didn't keep marriage. He thought that calling marriage a sacrament was nonsense. So what does he say about what God has joined? Yeah. He just had He thought that marriage was a divinely appointed institution. Okay, he's not saying. But not a sacrament. Okay. 